Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 50, Cause and Effect, where we will be looking at Chapters 104 and 105 of The Wise Man's Beer through the lens of determinism versus agency. All right, y'all should know the drill by now, but an explanation of the pod. Each week we'll be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will then, I believe, actually have a Fernimos today and then share a recommended thing of the week and wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second, there will be spoilers. And today, there will be big spoilers, because we are talking about... Da, 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 the cafe. So... Spoilers! You have been warned. Also, a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. Alrighty, time to get into it. First of all, I think that the theme that we've chosen or the lens that we've chosen speaks for itself, but I'd like to get into why we chose that. Yeah, I mean, this is one that I've been kind of chomping at the bit to get to since we read these books like years ago for the first time. What was it, 2016 when I first listened? Yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah. And the cafe is just this really powerful thought experiment basically (laughs) so not only have you been waiting since 2016 to really dive into something like this which is funny because we didn't even think about starting the podcast till like 2018 or 2019 but you've also had to sit through like 48 episodes of the previous book and then two different interludes and multiple sessions of reading Sandman, which is available on our Patreon. And then this is episode 50 of The Wise Man's Fear. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for, we get to talk about the cafe. Yeah, I mean, I don't really care about who Quote's mom is or if he's a lackless or, you know, any of the stuff about it. This is the stuff that is catnip to me. I was going to ask, as someone who couldn't be bothered with all of the theories, because let's be honest, you really couldn't be bothered with all of the theories. You'd rather deal with what is than what could be. I was very curious how you were thinking about the episode that centered on the cafe. So the thing about the cafe is it is a creature that is fundamentally both what could be and what is. It is a creature that has true, perfect, supposedly future vision, at least according to the lore. We don't know if that's 100% true, but supposedly the Cathay is able to see all possible futures and is then able to influence which one comes to pass because it's able to perfectly see causality. When we first see it, we see the Cathay chomping down on butterflies, which are, of course, the famous quantum theory idea that a butterfly flapping its wings on one side of the world creates a hurricane on the other. 
that sort of thing. So the idea is that every time the Cathay eats a butterfly, he is basically snipping one particular future timeline out of existence. And theoretically, he knows what he's doing, or it knows what it's doing. I don't know what the Cathay's pronouns are. The Cathay is kind of a Lovecraftian being, by my understanding. We never get a description of it. All we know is that it's trapped in this tree somewhere. But anyway, before we get too deep into the woods, let's go ahead and start with the text, shall we? Well... What do you mean specifically, though, by agency versus determinism? I want to make sure that we're covering that before we dive in too far. Okay, so when we talk about free will, such as it is, oftentimes it is in the context of moral accountability and responsibility. It goes back to the maxim that ought implies can. If you ought to do something, it implies that you have the choice to do it and also, conversely, the choice to not do it. And within the spectrum of theories of human will, there are a variety of ones available. So like, you'll have things like hard determinism, which basically says that you have an unending causal chain that goes all the way back to the dawn of the universe, and everything within that chain is essentially a foregone conclusion. You are acting out the causes and effects of everything that came before you, and everything that you do is unerringly determined. So that means that you have no choice, and all you have is the illusion of choice, because you think you are making a choice, but you are making a choice based solely on what predetermined thing you are already going to choose. Yep. There is no other possible world where you choose differently, because it's predestined fundamentally. And the whole idea of you having a choice, well, when you start boiling down to it, this concept of you as a person, as an agent, kind of disappears. You're just another cog in the machine. You are a gear in the watch. And that's about it. It's basically a clockwork universe. Then from there, you have things like compatibilism, which says that everything is predetermined, but you still have moral accountability as a moral agent because you still make actions and choices. And even if you couldn't have chosen differently, you still bear responsibility for them. It's a hybrid position that a lot of people don't like. <laughs> I'm not going to get too deep into the weeds on that one. Then on the indeterminate side, you have simple indeterminism, which is where random things happen all the time. You get unpredictable things that happen, and we are just as much a product of those and a creator of those unpredictable things. However, you're still kind of in the same position of the simple determinism worldview in that maybe you don't know how things are going to turn out, but you still don't really have a choice because you're still just as much at the mercy of spontaneously generating causal chains. And all you're getting is just randomness. Instead of having a straight line that you are moving unerringly down like a marble, you're a marble being dropped down a Plinko board. And the end result is still the end result. The end result is still the end result, but you don't have much choice. It's just the end result is harder to predict. Mm. And then there's agency and determinism, which says that we have the ability to make choices and choose our own paths as they see fit 
probably the best way to describe agency and determinism would be thinking of ourselves like a pinball player. Yes, the world still has a lot of randomness and chance within it. And yes, we're at the mercy of preordained laws of cause and effect and physics and all that fun stuff. But we've got two little flippers down at the bottom that we can use to influence the world around us. And if we play our cards right, we can do a fair amount with those flippers, right? Anyway, that's kind of where we're at there. And agency in determinism is really appealing to people because we like to believe that we have choices. It's, it's baked into how we think of ourselves, whether we have choices or not. We are incapable of acting as if we don't. <laughs> All right. So now I think we can get into the text. Yeah. Anyway, enough of my yammering. <laughs> so we catch up with Quoth here with Felurian on sort of the day side of the Fae. And he's been taking a bit more of an active role in crafting his shade, though he readily admits that this is one of those tasks that his natural gifts don't really help him out with. He's not instantly good at this, and so it's frustrating. It's a common problem for gifted kids. <laughs> I was going to say. I do think it's cool, though. He says, I could turn it from a short cape to a full hooded morning cloak or anything in between. So this shade, this cloak is of indeterminate size, dimensions, weight, design, unless he has a hand in it. And one of his chief contributions is, of course, suggesting that it has lots of little pockets. Because Pat loves little pockets and cloaks. And so therefore, so does Kvothe. It's enchanting. That was a fun little detail, too. But he can tell that he's starting to get on Felurian's nerves a little bit. And so he decides he's going to go for a walk. You missed a whole ton. I did. I'm sorry. Why don't you tell me what you find interesting and we'll talk about it. So Kvothe is actually quite interested in his shade. He wants to talk with Felorian about the work that's being done. He wants to find out how close it is to being completed. And every time he brings it up, Felorian just kind of shoes him off, which is very frustrating to him. So yeah, they're kind of bickering back and forth a little bit. I'm sure that there's something wrong, like Felorian thinking, the closer I get to finishing my work on the shade, the closer he is to leaving. I don't want that. But at the same time, I promised. And Quoth is just Quoth. He's sitting there going, why? How? Explain to me. I want to know all the ins and outs and the reasons. And so at one point, Felorian asked for a piece of iron. And as we have seen from Bast, that is no small ask from a fey creature. The question I keep coming back to on this is, since he's been going around naked the whole time, where did he keep it? Does anyone really want to know? Yes, inquiring minds. I think it's probably over with his loot and his clothes and all the other stuff. He probably has a knapsack over there somewhere. He just hasn't felt compelled to do much with it lately. Well, no wonder he wants pockets. <laughs> But, like, you and I every once in a while have a joke when, I think a lot of people actually have this joke, that when we've had a lot of garlic or we've had a lot of very fragrant, not necessarily the best smelling stuff to eat, that we're looking at each other and just going, well, I'm glad that your breath stinks too. <laughs> Florian does not like the smell of iron coming from Kvothe, especially when he shaves 
or otherwise handles things that are definitely from the mortal world. And so it really is a serious ask because she might be hurting herself in order to make this gift for him. I mean, she's fundamentally asking him to hand her one of her allergens. Yeah, that would be like asking for an onion for me. A pickled one. A pickled onion would be (sighs) something that would make me stop breathing for a little bit. That would be bad. Anyway, Kvothe is asking if he can help. And she just looks at him and goes, do you really want to help? He goes, yeah, leave. And he kind of protests a little bit until he looks at her and realizes he ought to leave. He's hit that limit. Yeah. Now, like a mother duck with ducklings, she's like, no, don't go too far. Stick around. Just leave me alone for a little while. Let me finish this. You're bothering me, kid. Go away. And importantly, don't go off the path. So what does Quoth do? He wanders a fair ways. He walks away feeling very hurt, very chided, and just doesn't pay attention to how far, where he's going, any of that stuff. In Quoth's meager defense here, time works differently in the Fae, and it's really hard to figure out distance or time or anything like that. So it's all very wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. There is a little sentence here that makes me kind of go back to some of the theory crafting that you don't give a crap about. The one of the sentences is pride and folly. They go together like two tightly grasping hands. And we all know that folly is almost certainly Cinder's sword. It is almost certainly the sword that is in the end of the Waystone. Yeah, what we really know is that Quoth's vice Like his central vice is pride more than anything else. Is pride another sword? It wouldn't surprise it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise you? Wouldn't surprise me. (laughs) 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 It would make sense. Like folly, though I I think in this case is just any sort of general bad decision making. He makes bad decisions because of pride. Others may make bad decisions because of lust or sloth or greed. Or any of those, but for him, it is fundamentally about his own pride. I agree, but Pat chooses his words carefully. He does. And Quoth definitely has the flaw of hubris. That is his fatal flaw. But maybe pride is talking about Quoth and folly being something that he is constantly experiencing. But I do think that there might be something tied back to those physical objects with those names or at least folly as a physical object with that name i could see it because names do have meaning in this world Mm -hmm. so while quoth is out exploring he finally comes to a clearing like an actual plane the first one that he's really seen since he got into the fey realm everything that he's seen up to this point has been forests and thickets and maybe the occasional little clearing in the middle like a little glade or something like that but never an actual full-on field and at the center of the field and what the trail seems to be steering him towards is a lone tree now he thinks it's closer than it is because he also doesn't realize just how big it is and so he makes his way towards it and towards it and towards it and feels like he's not getting any closer to it. It's just that it's that far away and it's that big. 
ultimately the path didn't lead to the tree, and we find out later from Bast why. I also have to say that if Bast's description of the Sith is anywhere approaching what Bast says they are, they really fell down on their jobs on this one. Or they let it happen. This is also a possibility. Did the Cathay corrupt them? Did they just not seek foes? Are they inept? Are they malicious? Or are they playing their own long game? So the path avoids the tree for like more than a half a mile. But Quoth being Quoth, paths? Who needs paths? More suggestions really anyway. Right. So he beelines it right to the tree. Because that seems smart. Everything's leading you away from this thing. I must go explore it. Sounds like a certain game designer I know. I just go to the left. So one of Quoth's other vices, in addition to hubris, is vicious curiosity. He goes up to this tree and he starts smelling something. And that description is smoke and spice and leather and lemon. And he's like, it's not even something that I'd really want. It's, I just want to know what it is because it's interesting. And I would definitely put it in my mouth. Right. Look, I'm not saying I think it would taste good. I just would have to know. Not because I'm hungry, but just because I'm curious. And he describes himself as a child, essentially. He's not far off. Well, I mean, he does spend a lot of time with people who are hanging out, messing with the laws of physics just because they can. So it tracks. Initially, when he arrives at the Cathay's tree, he believes that all of the colorful bits at the base of the tree are flowers. But then he realizes it's actually a carpet of butterflies. And at first he thinks they're resting, much like a Norwegian blue prefers lying on its back. It's probably just tired and shagged out after a long squawk. You're adorable. I'm just thinking, you go ahead and believe that, Quoth. And he tracks a whole lot of black and blue and purple butterflies that are very similar to the ones in Valorian's Glade. And I have to wonder if they are, in fact, related to Valorian. They could be. Are these all possibilities that are spawned from Valorian? That would make sense. And here's the other thing that I notice. Just to skip a little bit ahead here, to tie that back, when Quoth goes back to Valorian at the end of this chapter, he notices there aren't any butterflies around. So I'm wondering if all of those butterflies maybe had followed him into the Cathay's grasp. It's possible. Yeah. The next butterfly he does see is really large, eye-catching crimson. Is that Quoth? There's no way that there could be any symbolism there, right? None. <laughs> With faint tracery of metallic gold, its wings were bigger than my spread hand, and as I watched, it fluttered deeper into the foliage in search of a fresh flower to light upon. Suddenly, its wings were no longer moving in concert. They tumbled apart and fluttered separately to the ground, like falling autumn leaves. He has been lured into the Cathay's grasp. And I'm wondering if the size of the butterfly represents kind of how consequential the action is that comes to pass. If every time a butterfly dies, if it's because that possibility is ended. And if some of those possibilities that are ended have come to pass. Yeah, there's some of that. 
You also have to wonder if each of these represents mortal agents that the Cathay is using and is basically turning into his or its cat's paw, so to speak. It's useful idiots. Does it have to be mortal or could it be immortal? Could it be Felorian? Felorian could be just as much as really anybody in the Fae. This is a supremely malevolent being, at least according to Bast. Unreliable narrator that he is. <laughs> and I think there is something that is troubling about the Cathay in that if it can see everything and do everything, how are you supposed to have any agency when this creature is able to influence what happens with these seemingly random things that it's doing? Like it's taking small actions here, knowing exactly what it's going to do to bring about its own end. So, I mean, in this case, the Cathay is the one who has agency, the pinball player. It really only has a few flippers. It can talk to people and it can eat butterflies, but it's really good at eating butterflies and it's also really good at talking to people. Does it actually eat the butterflies? Is that something it is specifically doing or do they just die and litter their corpses along the carpet of grass and flowers beneath the canopy of this tree? It's a good question. Is it malicious and doing this to the butterflies on purpose? Or does this happen as a byproduct of things coming to pass? I think it's a little of both. And does it matter? The Cathay certainly does seem to take pleasure in ending the butterflies. The red ones offend my aesthetic. Yeah. That means if we're right, and it is representative of Quoth, that Quoth is an agent of chaos within the predetermined outcomes that the Cathay sees. Or he just hates gingers. Jerk. We actually see Quoth saying, my apologies, sir. And then goes, wait, wait, wait. It has flowers on the tree. So, ma'am? And the Cathay just goes, I am no tree. No more than a man is a chair. I am the Cathay. And it doesn't give its pronouns, but it is heavily implied that there is no gender. This is fair. And the Cathay says something about how many would envy your chance. And Quoth asks, chance? He's trying to get a good look at whatever the Cathay actually is, rather than whatever this tree is. And I'm going to guess that the tree is not actually a tree, insofar as it's also more of a projection. It's like a glamour. Maybe one that was forced on the Cathay, but it is not. Everything about this is a visual metaphor. I kind of see it as the Cathay lives in the tree in some fashion, like, Quoth sees flashes of movement here and there, but they're suggestions more than definite things. Like he can't really focus on any one thing at any given time. All he sees is the tree, something's moving, and then a butterfly dies. And the whole idea of the Cathay being no more a tree than a man is a chair seems to me that if we follow that metaphor, the Cathay lives in the tree in some fashion or on the tree. I'm not sure that there is a tree. It may not be a literal tree. You are correct. Quoth even says, you're an oracle. And the Cathay is just like, you have absolutely no frame of reference that could possibly explain what I am. Stop it. And then two iridescent blue black wings fluttered separately to the ground. And Quoth says, I thought the red ones offended you. There are no red ones left. The possibilities that Quoth brought with him are now gone. 
I wonder who those blue and black ones represent. The next thing we see is Cathay saying, you're Felorian's new manling, aren't you? I can smell the iron on you. It doesn't seem like the Cathay is as affected by iron as other fey creatures. He just knows that it exists. And then he taunts Kvothe and says, or then it, I guess. It taunts Kvothe and asks, I wonder how she can stand it, that smell. All the while, more and more butterflies are being killed. And the Cathay goads him into asking questions. Yeah, it is the worst AMA ever. <laughs> so naturally, Kvoth goes, let's start with the Amir. Who are the Amir? How can I find them? And the Cathay is just like, oh, really? That's your question? That's what you're going to go with first? Ask me what you really want to know. Ask me about the Chandrian. Kvoth sits there stunned and silent. It gives the Cathay more of an opening to worm its way in. The Cathay has a pretty astute diagnosis of Kvoth. Too proud to ask for help, too clever, and too mindful of his reputation. And he's basically saying, hey, you don't have to worry about that here, buddy. No one will know. No one cares about your reputation here. It's just me, and I know everything. Can't hide from me. The Cathay does say you would do better to call them the Seven, though. Chandrian has too much folklore hanging off of it after all these years. People don't take the Chandrian seriously, but those who know do take the Seven seriously. So let's go over some of these revelations here. Okay. So first, we learn that Haliax has been alive for 5,000 sleepless years. So now we have a timeline. Oh, we missed some stuff that I actually oh, did. do. Oh, talk yeah, about. yeah. The Cathay is clearly playing with Quoth. It is amused. It knows that those that seek it try to outsmart it, and they can't. And they know that Quoth is, if nothing else, prideful. And the Cathay even says, why do you want this information? And Quoth says, I need it. I need to know. He can barely speak, so... While he's thinking, I need to say this forcefully, he is basically whispering. This is really the first time that he's come out and said to another being why he is so desperate to find the Chandrian. This is something that he has carried with him in the deepest heart of his hearts, really since his parents died, since the Chandrian killed them. The Cathay says, you need why this sudden need to know this information? The masters at the university might know the answers you're looking for, but they wouldn't tell you, even if you did ask. Which you won't. And it makes me think, which masters should he ask? Which is a common refrain that I had the entire time he was at the university. Seriously, this boy needs to ask for help. You know what would be avoided? <laughs> Probably a good 1,100 pages worth of writing if this boy would just ask. But then there'd be no plot for help. That said, when it comes to secret knowledge, just going up and asking for it isn't going to get it for you. Right. I don't think Lauren would actually tell him anything, though I'm pretty sure that Lauren has a font of information that he should be able to just share with this kid if Kvothe would explain himself, you know, like if. Well, if Kvothe had done anything other than prove himself unwise and reckless in how he handles himself and. Literally everything. Right. Like 
I've reached an age where I've realized I have more sympathy for adult authority figures than I do for child protagonists. And when I look at Lauren's perspective, I find it so easy to sympathize exactly with everything that he does to both. I'm just sitting here like, if I'm in Lauren's position, of course I'm stripping this kid from the archives. Of course I'm not going to give him all of this information that he's asking for because clearly he has not shown that he is able to handle it responsibly. And no, I am not going to teach him how to split the atom. No, I am not going to show him the secrets of the universe. This kid... Yeah, he's smart, but he's also really dumb. I'm not doing it. Though Elodin, I'm sure, would not give him a straight answer. But I'm sure that if Kvothe went up to talk to Elodin and actually was honest about his wants, his needs, that Elodin would either be perfectly okay telling him literally everything that he ever wanted to know, or would just leave. I'm betting the latter. Because remember, Elodin, as seemingly mercurial as he is, does actually respect wisdom and respect the importance of learning things for yourself. Yes. And being able to handle it. I think Elodin would see that and say, oh, you're not ready, kid. Though there is a limit to learning things on your own when you can't ask for help. When you can't ask questions and get a straight answer, where are you supposed to learn this stuff if no one is willing to teach it to you and you cannot find a book? The point I'm trying to get at is it's not just the asking questions and asking any questions. Like, honestly, both could ask some other questions to show that he has the appropriate level of curiosity. And he could also show a little bit of discretion about how he uses the answers to his questions. Because it's not just about that. It's what you do with the information afterwards. And Kvothe never stops to think that far ahead. Also true. I guess, for me, the step of asking questions and researching through talking to people who are more experienced than him is a sign of wisdom, which we all know he does not have. Yes, I'll agree with you there. So, other things that we learn. Haliax has been alive for 5,000 sleepless years. So this actually gives us a timeline for what the Chandrian's story looks like. 5,000 years in the big scheme of things isn't too big. It's certainly to the point where you're not going back into prehistory. Though, having legit, accurate, this exact thing happened accounts from 5,000 years ago is rare. It is. It's also usually pretty inaccurate. <laughs> That's what I mean, is having accurate accounts of events that old is damn near impossible. The cafe, again, with constantly goading Kvothe, brings this up in the context of, oh, you think you're going to kill them? <laughs> this is cute. So then he says that Amir could help, but they're as hard to find as the Chandrian themselves. And then he also kind of intimates that even if you did find them, there's no guarantee that they'd help you. Though it is clever for you to start there. Because the Cathay is all about buttering Kvothe up, only to deliver the next killing blow. And he does have a few interesting things here. The price of civilization is arrogance. You assume you know everything and dismiss anything you haven't seen. And this is a diagnosis that fits Kvothe. And it also fits the Adem. So, Kvothe, this entire time he's been in the Fae, 
He's seeing all of these things beyond the mortal realm, and he's still trying to say, well, that doesn't make sense. That can't possibly be true. He's still trying to disbelieve what his own eyes are telling him. And the Adem are similar. They dismiss everything that happens outside the Stormwall as barbarians. They're not civilized. Only we, the Adem, are civilized. Everything that we do is for civilization. We don't have to learn from the outside. The cafe continues. It says, not many folk will take your search for the Adem seriously, you realize. The mayor, however, quite the extraordinary man. He's already come close to them, though he doesn't realize. Stick by the mayor, and he will lead you to their door. Door of stone, perhaps? The cafe speaks in riddles. We also get confirmation that the name of the one who killed Kvoth's mother was Cinder. The cafe taunts Kvoth with talking about how his mother and father died, that Cinder tortured them, and while Lorien held up, Arladin begged and blubbered. Lorien was always a trooper, if you'll pardon the expression. Oof. Now, there's another little bit here, too. The cafe gave a thin, dry chuckle, blood, bracken, and bone. I wish you creatures had the wit to appreciate me. Whatever else you may forget, remember what I just said about the door. Eventually, you'll get the joke. Ah! Because that's also directly speaking to us, the audience. Eventually, we'll get that joke. There's a lot of theories about that joke. And then, of course, Quoth asks, why did the Chandrian kill Quoth's family? Because they wanted to, and they had a reason. Why'd they leave Quoth alive? Because they were sloppy, he was lucky, and something scared them away. Quoth actually isn't the one really driving the conversation, though. The Cathay is telling Quoth what it wants to tell Quoth, because Quoth is so flabbergasted, so shocked, so frozen. Fight or flight has stuck him in place. Well, and he's also different from all of the characters that Bass talks about in the interlude, right? In all of those cases, these are people who have gone to the cafe seeking knowledge or a special healing flower or whatever, who know what the cafe's deal is. As far as Kvothe is concerned, he's just ran into some really knowledgeable weirdo who's telling him things that he's always wanted to know, unprompted. Except in the most disturbingly, I'm going to play with my food kind of way. Yes. The cafe also says, not only were these possibilities, the sloppy, the lucky, whatever, but perhaps it's because something chased them away. And we do know that that's pretty much what happened. The cafe is being more malicious and more cryptic. But when we saw that section, if you want to go all the way back to, I believe, episode seven of our read through the name of the wind, they did get chased away. They didn't really have time to just murder Pone Kvothe. And then why am I telling you all this? A couple possibilities. Maybe Cinder did me a bad turn once. Maybe it amuses me. Maybe I want to see what happens if I send you running at their heels. Not that anything's going to come of it or like benefit you in any way. 
And I think the thing that I get out of this is if we take as axiomatic that everything that the Cathay says is true, all of those things that it's saying are possibilities for what its motives are. And none of those are strictly lies because it's talking in counterfactuals. And ultimately, the Cathay is the sort of creature that can tell you every single thing truly, but the truth you hear may not be the one that it's speaking. And it can hide everything behind possibly's, maybes. Those are all technically true that it's possible, whether it is or isn't the actual thing. It's true that it could be. It's like in D&D. The room appears to be empty. Anyway, to continue. Not to be too granular about everything, but we get a revelation that puts into context the fight with the bandits in the woods and why they were unable to find the leader. Cole Black Eyes, anyone? Why can't you find the cinder? You'd think that he would be easy to find with a description of exactly what he's like, right? That if this creature, if this person existed, it'd be hard to miss. I mean, you missed him. He was right in front of you. And it dawns on Kvothe that it was the leader of the bandits. And maybe someone else. Possibly. And there is mention again of the sword like winter ice. Polly? That's been my theory. Pity he got away, the Cathay continued. Still, you must admit you've had quite a piece of luck. I'd say it was a twice-in-a-lifetime opportunity meeting up with him again. Pity you wasted it. The Cathay is a bastard. <laughs> and it's only getting warmed up. Because next, the Cathay starts taunting Kvothe with the story of Denna and her patron. He beats her, you know, her patron. And I'm not going to go into more of it because it's disturbing. And if you want to know all of what the Cathay says, you can read it for yourself. And then his final taunt is that Kvothe's own stubbornness at his last meeting with Denna drove her away. That he truly had hurt her so badly that she wasn't going to try and find him again. She was just beginning to trust you before that. And that's, I think, the real tragedy of all of that is that Kvothe's own pride, his own sense that he has to be right in every situation. There is the folly right there. You know, Denna trusted him, cared about him, valued him as a friend, a companion, maybe something more. But his pride drove her away, put an end to that, and hurt her worse than just about anything else. And at that point, Kvothe turns tail and he runs, heedless of his own safety, back to Florian. I think that's when he really discovers the depth of the Cathay's malice. At this point, the Cathay has stopped just revealing things that he wants to know and is now just telling him things to hurt him. Valorian is concerned and works to try to take care of Kvothe. And we learn, though, that most people that encounter the Cathay lose their mind. But he's still okay, which is both reassuring and minimizing the trauma that he went through. I'd say he seems okay. But... Florian says he is okay. That you haven't lost your mind, so you're okay. I think the secret is that Kvothe has never been okay. Like, not since that day in the woods when he lost his family. He hasn't been okay at all. And so this is just one more addition to that baseline trauma. 
he's definitely not okay and he hasn't been okay, like I say, for years now. This is the most important thing to know about this whole section. Quoth asks, it lies to men and drives them mad? And Florian looks him straight in the eye and says, the cafe does not lie. The cafe only tells truths specifically to hurt. Like, it's one thing when someone calls you a name that doesn't match who you are. They insult you for something that isn't true. That's one thing, and most people can get over that. But the ones that hurt the most are the ones that we secretly either know or fear are true. We break back out to an interlude, and Kvothe asks, Are you all right, Bast? Bast looks very affected, and he's like, But you never told me that you spoke to the cafe. And then he goes, There's a lot of things that I've never told you, Bast. And immediately, Bast is just like, you're, you're lying. This didn't happen. That's not a thing that happened. I know you didn't do it. Good. Cool. Yay. We're good. We're good. Okay. And Kvothe says, I don't need to lie. This is my chance to actually tell my story. And Bast explodes. He says, don't lie to me. You can lie to any other dipshirt sure. that you want to lie to. Lie to Chronicler. It doesn't matter. But you don't lie to me. And it's clear that this is disturbing, this is wrong, this is not okay. Bast is not okay with this information. It kind of seems to me like Bast is going through stages of grief here. Like, because he starts with just denial. Like, oh, you're telling a fun embellishment. This is something that you're doing to pad your reputation. You do this all the time. You couldn't possibly have done that. And then he flies into a rage and then after that, he goes into a despair because his friend has been hurt by this creature. Has been tainted, his timeline, the future, everything. And Quoth says, I've faced worse than the cafe. Bass says, there is nothing worse than the cafe. Because the cafe is an arch malefactor as far as Bast knows. Everything that Quoth will experience, as far as Bast is concerned, happens because of the Cathay's interventions and meddling. We get our mention of the Scythe, Sith, whatever, and how Quoth should be dead. And I still maintain they probably let this happen. Whether because one of them or all of them were tainted by the Cathay. Because at a certain point, if it's influencing everything around it and you're set to guard it... Yeah, there's... All of these little small things that the cafe is influencing in ways that may not be immediately observable, but have long-term ripple effects that could influence how the Sith behave. Now, much like every evil creature in folklore or what have you, there are reasons why people would seek out the cafe, including the fact that there are flowers that grow on or around the cafe that are a panacea. For instance, there's this story that Felorian had told about a prince who was trying to cure someone that he loved, finds the flower, takes the flower back, and then ends up falling in love with the wrong person. And then that ends up with him breaking a betrothal and bringing two families to war as a result of that. And leads to untold casualties and bloodshed and chaos and strife and generational trauma because when these sorts of things happen it's never just the immediate participants that suffer 
the fallout from it carries on for generations. Like Bast thinks of anyone who comes into contact with the Cathay not as some arrow sent into the future because an arrow only hits one person. That person is a bomb. They wreck havoc on the people around them, their communities, the communities around those communities, and you know, just causing strife, turmoil, struggle, suffering on the continental level, all from just these simple conversations. Again, the Cathay doesn't have a whole lot of direct power, but it's got those two flippers and it knows exactly how to use them. We learn that Jack spoke to the Cathay before he stole the moon, and then that Lanray spoke to the Cathay before he orchestrated the betrayal of Mir Terennial. I kind of have a theory here. So in this case, the Cathay, it's possible is not one of the shapers, but the listener. He's the guy up at the top of the mountain that Jack spoke to, listening to the wind. The one who hears, sees, knows everything. And in the story, the man is seemingly benign and harmless and tries to dissuade Jax from his course. But everything that the old man says seems to point Jax towards his folly, his great crime. And then we know that Lanray, who is, I think, I have a theory about who Lanray is. I think Lanray is actually Cinder and not Haliax. Okay, but what about Celatos? Celatos, I'm not sure about. Celatos could be the Cathay. Some people speculate that he is because Celatos's supposed curse is to be all-seeing. The other thing to note here is we get an example of Bast's skill at magic, and he uses it to terrifying effect. He, at one point, had slammed his hand on the table, spilling beer and ink making Chronicler have to rescue the pristine piece of paper off of the table, which is now cracked and broken, and Bast fixes it. He gets through magic, it all put back together, and all the beer, the ink, everything gathered together magically into the form of a raven that flies around the taproom. He catches it, and he squishes it. And... Foth sees his role as Coat the Innkeeper as the end of his story, a tragic story, a story that's over. It's all but just waiting for the final, the end. After a person meets the Cathay, all of their choices will be the wrong one. Catastrophically wrong. There's something that Chronicler says that I actually really like. He says, it's not over if you're still here. It's not a tragedy if you're still alive. And I think with that, that's a perfect time to segue to our Frunimos. With one exception. I do think it's interesting that Bast brings it back to plays and says that the Cathay is a shorthand for this story will end not just in tragedy, but in catastrophic ways. They know that everything will go terribly wrong in the end. We as the audience are introduced to the Cathay. The story has no happy ending. At least that's how Kvothe sees it. And I still love Chronicler's response. It's not over if you're still here. It's not a tragedy if you're still alive. But Kvothe says, oh, you're both so young. It's like the equivalent of you sweet summer children. Now, that's not to take away from what you're about to say about Chronicler. Correct. Kvothe 
remember, knows a lot of things, but he's also capable of being spectacularly wrong. And I think there's something to this idea of the Cathay as sort of this all-seeing, all-knowing, all-determining factor, right? And as much of its power comes from being able to lead people into despair. And the thing about it is that stories don't have concrete endings. Like, your story doesn't end the moment the end happens. You keep going. As long as you're drawing breath, you're still making choices, and you still have choices that you can make. Some of them can be good, some of them can be bad, and you're still the one making those. I think that while Quoth is definitely given in to that despair, we know that he's waiting to die. We know that he wants nothing more than for his life to end, for his suffering to end. You know, clearly tragedy has befallen him and probably been brought about by him. I think he still thinks that there is a purpose to whatever comes next, but I think that he feels like once that purpose is fulfilled, he's gone. Chronicler offers a third way. He says, we don't know what happens next. We don't know that the Cathay knows everything. What we do know is that we're here alive. We're talking with one another. We live in this moment. We have choices ahead of us. We can do our best. And maybe we make choices that the Cathay didn't foresee. Or we make choices that the Cathay foresaw and tried to steer us away from. Or dismissed. The Cathay is just as much a creature of pride and hubris as any human being. Its entire nature is arrogance. It's clever, certainly. It's smart. It knows a lot of things, and it can play a long game, but that doesn't mean that it's perfect. That it has absolute 100% certainty. It really thinks it does. Much like Quoth. Exactly. And there's a life still to live. Quoth has a shot if he chooses to pull his head out of his dash and take it. Chronicler doesn't have the flashy magic of Bast or the flamboyance of Quoth. Instead, he brings something more grounded. We know that his element of choice, the thing that he knows the name of, is iron. I think it speaks to that grounded nature that he brings to everything. That very mortal human nature. I think there's something powerful and beautiful in that. There's also some humility in it, knowing that despair is as much a reaction of hubris as anything else. It's assuming that you know what's going to happen better than anybody else and that it's a foregone bad conclusion. And you can then give up because you know exactly what's going to happen next. Despair is far more hubristic than hope than taking the chance to try and do better. And I think that's something we can all remember and we can all find hope in. I think that's some practical wisdom. So with that out of the way, it's time for us to go to our thing of the week. It's your turn. What did you pick? All right. So while I would love to recommend consuming more media, especially because the second season of one of my favorite shows just dropped and I already watched all of it twice. And because I feel it's important for representation. And if you know what it is, you know what it is. And if you don't know what it is, maybe ping me on Discord. But Does it rhyme with part flopper? No comment. But because we stand with the strikers, even though this is British and anti-trade laws stuff prevents British union workers from acting in solidarity with 
other countries, union workers, were going to respect the SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild and not necessarily go into more media consumption. And so instead, what I am going to recommend is narrowly the game Kittens in a Blender and more broadly game nights, even if they're with people that you haven't previously met. And sometimes both of those things at once. Because if you have the same kind of sense of humor that we have, which is to look at these cards with cute little kittens on them and they're all named and they're adorable and they're wonderful and I love the game. It's very simple to play. It's easy to give the rules to and everyone that we've introduced it to that has a good sense of humor has found a massive amount of joy in it. Like introducing that game to a new gaming group and having them just in tears busting up the whole night, having us in tears busting up the whole night. And mind you, all of us that were playing the game, very big cat lovers. We love Sokka. They have four cats and they love them. We love our cat. They love their cats. The game Kittens in a Blender, so fun. And these were people I hadn't met previously and that you've been talking to because we found them through a Facebook group that is a local board game enthusiasts. Sure. Facebook group. I mean, there's yeah. overlaps. Yeah. Anyway. Haven't said a lie. I haven't, but it was a lot of fun and just, I haven't laughed like that in a very long time. Yeah. It was really fun just to sit around and eat inordinate amounts of cheese. <laughs> and we had a charcuterie day. Yeah. It was nice. Adult Lunchables. Yes. With a whole bunch of kids around too, actually. Yes. And... Neighbor children. <laughs> children that belong to the people that we were playing with. I'm still not sure which ones are which. I know which ones are which. Good for you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we had a really good time just hanging out and talking and playing and laughing and bonding over this really silly game. <laughs> and how terrible we felt afterwards. Terrible. Terrible. Quote, terrible. Yeah, that's my recommendation. I think that having in-person board game days with people that you can look at each other and go, how dare you? And still be friends at the end. In fact, being more friends in the end. Yeah. I mean, we made some new friends there. Like, like I was an online acquaintance. And now feeling like, yeah, these are friends. Yeah. It was a bonding experience for us. So that's my recommendation. Awesome. So uh, let's go then to seven words from the books. It's your turn for those. Well, you've already said them. It's not over if you're still here. It's a really good one. It's important, not just from a story perspective. I know a lot of people have been struggling with mental health issues. Mental health issues lie to people. They lie to us. My anxiety lies to me. Your depression lies to you. And it's that reminder that you're still here. You still have choices to make. You still have a quest to complete. You still have agency. You still have influence. You still have people. You still matter. And even while you may think you know what's going to happen, you still have a chance to make it not be that. Or to make something good or better happen. Exactly. And for Seven Words from Life, I picked something that you referenced as well. Go home and apologize to your cats. <laughs> <laughs> it is actually a rule of kittens in a blender. It's the final words of the rule book. 
go home and apologize to your cats. I don't think we apologized to Sokka yet. I did. Oh, you did? Yeah. I haven't. Well, he has been a butt, so. He woke me up this morning, not just chewing on the fitted sheet to our bed, but like ripping it. You don't owe him an apology. With his teeth. Such a little jerk. I love him, though. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me, too. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 106 and 107 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of All Grown Up. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jank for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod. Also, join our Discord! It's the best way to hang out with us. I think we're fun. Yeah, I've pretty much given up on the social media platform where the word sis is a slur. Sorry, guys, I'm never going back there, and the only way that you're going to see anything from us there is when it auto-posts. Yeah, join our Discord. There'll be a link in the show notes here. Yes, and with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! All right. You ready? I am if you are. So it's all incumbent on me now. No. 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 I love you. Yay.